it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Streaming only on Peacock. John Wayne Gacy is suspected of having killed as many as 32. Straight from the killer's mouth. They want you to believe that I alone committed these murders. The new gripping six-part documentary series that investigates the crimes that shocked the nation. The thing everybody thought they knew wasn't the whole story. John Wayne Gacy, Devil in Disguise. All episodes streaming now. Only on Peacock. The unstoppable spirit lives inside all of us. For Matt and Lisa Kuhn, it's fueled by family. Working together to make vehicles more useful for their community, they've become leaders in last-mile transportation. That's why First Horizon is proud to celebrate unstoppable spirits like Matt and Lisa. From the first stop to the final destination, we use our understanding to keep our clients headed towards success. Visit firsthorizon.com unstoppable to learn how unstoppable starts here. It's the Opperman Report. Join digital forensic investigator and PI Ed Opperman for an in-depth discussion of conspiracy theories, strategy of New World Order resistance, high-profile court cases in the news, and interviews with expert guests and authors on these topics and more. It's the Opperman Report. And now, here is investigator Ed Opperman. Okay, welcome to the Opperman Report. I'm your host, private investigator, Ed Opperman, and this show is brought to you by CartKing.com. That's Cart-King.com. And you give me a call at 877-986-7771. Uh, have you ever thought about opening your own mobile cart or kiosk business? Perhaps the current business uh, wants to add multiple point-of-sale locations across the country quickly. Maybe the facility you manage could kickstart revenue by adding coffee, food, or retail services. Well, CartKing.com can be the answer to your needs. CartKing.com is a North American designer and manufacturer of the finest mobile retail, coffee, and food carts and cans that money can buy. For 20 years, CartKing.com has been working with clients and corporations across America to provide indoor and outdoor carts and cans for any application. So you go to cart-king.com, you'll you look up whatever applies to your business. They'll custom design it for you. They'll ship it to you worldwide. Uh, give them a call, 877-986-7771. Okay. We got a fascinating guest here. He's a local Vegas uh, ex FBI agent. His name is uh, Scott Decker. You can find his website as rscottdecker.com. Uh, the book we're going to be talking about today is uh, his area of expertise recounting the anthrax attacks, terror, the Amerithrax Task Force, and the evolution of forensics in the FBI. 
if you're locally here, you can catch him down. He's going to be at the Mob Museum uh, coming up uh, November 23rd at the Mob Museum, uh, 4 p.m. It's a Friday, Black Friday, right before, uh, what do you call it, uh, Thanksgiving. Uh, but also, too, in Phoenix, Arizona, he's going to be at the uh, Arizona State University November 1st to November 3rd. Uh, so, Scott Decker, are you there? Yes, I am, Ed. Thank you so much. Tell us tell us about yourself. Who is Scott Decker? Um, I retired from the FBI as a special agent in uh, 2011. Uh, time has really flown by since re- retirement. I'm sure you hear a lot of people say that. Um, before the FBI, I went to grad school at University of Michigan and gained a doctorate in human genetics. I then went to private industry. The uh, new biotech companies were starting up back then, and I joined one of those outside Boston. And then I uh, decided to uh, throw my hat in the ring for the FBI, and lo and behold, they picked me up, and I went to the FBI Academy in uh, back in 90. And uh, I made it through that. That's kind of a selection process, really. Uh, they, they teach you things, but they also evaluate us at the same time, put us under a microscope. They survived that and uh, went back to Boston for a few years and worked on bank robberies and armored car robberies. So um, I transferred to counterterrorism and went down to Quantico. And then uh, on September 12, 2001, I went up to Ground Zero in New York City and we set up a command post at the uh, what we called the pile, Ground Zero, for a couple of weeks. Uh, and I came back to Washington, D.C., and around the same time I came back, there were news reports of somebody who had died in Florida of inhalational anthrax, which was unusual because that was the first inhalational anthrax death, death in the U.S. in the uh, 25 years. And it was also unusual because the person who died was an office worker in humid South Florida. So all that did not add up to a, um, a natural outbreak of anthrax. It sounded like bioterrorism to those of us at headquarters. And, but we had to, it had to be proved yet, and that's where my book starts out, in that journey. Did you have an expertise in anthrax? At the time, I did not. Um, after the bank robbery squad in Boston at Quantico, I, um, I first joined the new unit called the Hazardous Materials Response Unit. Uh, we were a new unit formed in, I think, 1996, officially. I joined in 97. Our mission was to collect, preserve, and identify, analyze uh, evidence from a weapon of mass destruction crime scene. And that could be biological, it could be chemical, and certainly nuclear or radiological. We trained in all four of those uh, uh, substances, weapons, I guess would be the best word. Uh, my background was human genetics, and I had also worked on human viruses uh, after graduate school. And I also worked on infectious disease diagnostics, but I had never grown anthrax. Um, what I had done when I was at the hazmat unit, I did hire the first two mi- microbiologists that the FBI has, um, Doug Beecher and uh, Doug Anders. They're both excellent and I believe this still with the Bureau, those were our first two um, trained microbiologists, and they act, they worked as microbiologists for the FBI. Um, Doug Beecher especially was our go-to guy for anthrax questions until I came up to speed and a few of others of us came up to speed. Uh, what it did help me is my work in diagnostic 
uh, test development helped a great deal because I applied that directly to the anthrax case. So we're jumping ahead a couple of years. Okay, so you were down at Ground Zero in New York City because of the, the 9-11 attacks, uh, airplanes crashed into the buildings. Uh, and then when right. you heard about this, uh, Robert Stevens over there in Florida, they pulled you off that and sent you to Florida? Um, what, what happened? And this is all described in my book. And, and um, you know, it's, I was up at Ground Zero, hmm. and we had a command post right at the edge of the pile. Um, we could watch it during the day when it rained. A couple of days, it was just mud and ash and cement dust. Uh, it was bad, and unfortunately, a lot of the people there are now coming down with cancer and dying and whatnot. So I guess we have that to look forward to down the road. Mm. Um, but anyway, I was up there for a couple of weeks, and you know, I was hearing bits and pieces of the investigation into 9/11 and so forth, and. I just got tired of working support. I wanted to be um, at the front of an investigation. I wanted to physically go investigate terrorists like those who had uh, uh, done 9-11 acts, hijackings. And in my role as a hazardous material response unit uh, supervisor, I would get into the investigation a little bit in the beginning, and then we would go off and uh, – collect evidence for another one, but I never saw the whole investigation through. And I missed that. I did have done that at bank robberies. So I found the, uh, I went up to 26 Federal Plaza, which was a few blocks from ground zero. Uh, they had evacuated, the FBI had evacuated their offices, but there still was an FBI police on duty. And uh, I badged my way in. I found a computer and I wrote a memo demoting myself to street agent and sent it down to headquarters. <laughs> so, it's, it's called step down. Okay. Uh, so I, I stepped down. It means I, I dropped myself a grade so I could go back to investigations. Um, and when they saw that, they uh, brought my butt back to Washington. And I was uh, temporary in, at headquarters until my new transfer order came through. So I had the 3 to 11 desk up in the uh, command center at headquarters, fielding threats and phone calls for weapons of mass destruction. Then uh, the transfer unit cut my orders, and they sent me to the Washington field office just as the anthrax case was spinning up. And uh, they immediately put me on that. So. So they sent you to because because they were mailing these things to D.C. as well, right? So did you ever go down to Florida to investigate that end of things? No, I never did. Uh, people did. Doug Beecher was down there for a while. He got sent down there. Um, we had the outbreak in Florida. We never recovered a letter, but um, the mailboxes at the building where the man worked were filled with anthrax spores. So it was highly suggestive of the mail. Uh, we had people. We had two mail uh, letters in New York City, and we had two letters on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. So the targets were New York City, Washington, D.C., and Boca Raton, Florida. Um, each office opened up their own investigation. But then headquarters realized everything was connected. Um, we showed that scientifically uh, very quickly. So they rolled and consolidated the investigation into a single office, and they chose the Washington field office for that, and that's where I was. Uh, that, that's how that happened. And Washington field office became what we call in the Bureau Office of Origin. They were the Office of Origin for the investigation. 
uh, we were responsible for sending leads around the country and developing uh, additional leads and eventually try to solve the case, eventually to solve the case, I should say. Now, now the letters uh, alluded to Allah and, and stuff like that. So did you immediately think that there was a connection between the anthrax, because everyone else did, uh, there was a connection between the anthrax attacks and the airplane attacks? Um, yeah, uh, I would have to say for the first three to four weeks, we, at least I and others that I uh, worked with, suspected al-Qaeda. Um, I know the country, the, the administration uh, on Capitol Hill suspected Iraq, and they suspected al-Qaeda was in collusion with Iraq. None of that turned out to be true. Um, we never found one shred of evidence that Iraq was involved. Um, Al-Qaeda, I think, my personal theory is, this is not the Bureau's theory or any other agent, but I, I tried to bring this out in the book, show not tell, as we say. I think the mailer sent the first letter down to Boca Raton in an effort to get us to look at Al-Qaeda and divert, either stir up things and uh, cause war or to get us away from looking at him. And the reason I say that is there were several coincidences. Um, Robert Stevens, the first death, was a photographer, ed a photograph editor for American Media. American Media publishes National Enquirer, The Globe, and The Sun, uh, what we refer to as uh, supermarket tabloids. Um, they're very inflammatory sometimes. And back in September of 01, they had published some very inflammatory photos and stories about uh, Us uh, Osama bin Laden. Uh, very, very insulting, a couple of them, headlines. And I kind of think that brought the AMI's attention to the mailer. Um, also, around that time, or I guess a week after 9-11, President and the uh, Attorney General I'm sorry, let me back up, let me back up. The director of the FBI, and that was Robert Mueller at the time, he had just come on board, and the attorney general were holding daily press conferences. And they announced to everybody that about half of the hijackers lived around Boca Raton. Mm -hmm. I think uh, nine out of the 18 at least, if not more, lived right around that area. Um, to make it even more suspicious, one of the uh, managing editors at American Media his wife was a, was a realtor, and their last name is Irish, um, and there are several other books about the case. This is nothing that's never been made public. Um, I, her first name eludes me right now, but it's, it's in the book, several books. Anyway, she had rented an apartment to, I think, two or four of the hijackers. It was either two of them or four of them. It was really important. And uh, they were immediately interviewed after 9-11 by agents from Miami because of this. Um, it, it proved to be a pure coincidence. But there were things like this. There, oh, and the other thing that uh, kind of made me think it might have been al-Qaeda was the letters we found were postmarked in uh, Trenton, New Jersey. And if you remember the first bombing of the World Trade Center where they used a van loaded with explosives and parked it underneath, those uh, terrorists had lived in North Jersey. Right. Uh, I know it, I, I'm from New Jersey. I know the area. So that, again, was a little bit suspicious. So all these things came together, 
And then, of course, the letter alluded to uh, Allah is great, and they misspelled penicillin, and they referenced 9-11. So all these things, I think, were purposely, not the New Jersey connection, but the Florida connections, were made uh, for us to start looking at al-Qaeda. Okay, and, well, and we so the mailer mails one of the letters to uh, uh, Stevens, or Stevens came to contact with this letter, and Stevens's wife was a real estate agent who rented apartments to the 9-11 hijackers. No, no Robert Stevens and Maureen Stevens were married. Okay. Um, Robert Stevens died from inhalational anthrax, and a lot of spores were found around his work area at the AMI building. A managing editor, a senior position to Robert Stevens, was a man with the last name of Irish. He was a manager editor at the same building. His wife was a realtor. Gotcha. So it, it turned out to be all coincidence, really. Hey, guys, I got a great new deal for you. It's called Factor, America's number one ready-to-eat meal delivery service. Now, I want you to take out a pen and paper and write down Opperman 50, O-P-P-E-R-M-A-N 5-0. Now, fact is delicious ready-to-eat meals make eating better every day easy. Wherever tomorrow takes, you'll be ready with pre-prepared, chef-crafted, and dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. You'll have over 35 different options a week to choose from, including Kato, Calorie Smart, Vegan Veggie, and more. Uh... There's even more to enjoy with over 55 nutrition-packed add-ons that help make your weekly meal planning even more delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and have a feel-good week of meals ready to go. Two-minute meals. Fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat wherever you are. Snacks, smoothies, and more. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day like breakfast, midday bites, and more. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing 6 to 18 meals per week. Plus, you can pause or schedule your deliveries anytime. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. So there's no prepping, no cooking, no cleanup needed. Now head to factormeals.com front slash opperman50. And then you use code opperman50 to get 50% off. That's code opperman50 at factormeals.com front slash opperman50. O-P-P-E-R-M-A-N-5-0 to get 50% off. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. There's a, there's a connection, but it's, it's you're, like you said, it could be coincidence. Now, would the mailer have, you're saying that the mailer did that to throw you off the track? How would the mailer know this? That's my personal theory. That's my personal theory. Okay. Because um, the tabloids were publishing photographs and inflammatory headlines about Osama bin Laden right. after 9-11. And uh, those tabloids are nationwide. You can buy them anywhere in the country. And the other thing was the daily press conferences from the director and the AG also described the terrorists and where they lived. And about half of them lived around Boca Raton in Florida okay. before the hijacking. So those two things were widely publicly known. And I think the first letters, if indeed it was the first letter, and I think it was, went to Florida, uh, the company in Boca Raton, I think as an effort. And then the wording in the letter, you know, obviously referred to uh, Allah, right. Islam. All those three things came together, I think, with purpose to kind of make us look at al-Qaeda first. Uh, and we did for three or four weeks. What was the span of time between the... the plane crashes in New York City and when the anthrax started turning up? How many days passed? Um, let me pause for a second. Rather than give you bad information, uh, I, I also have an old computer. It's better as well. Wait a minute. You just look at Wikipedia. I got it pulled up here. It's <laughs> my own question. Well, I'm going to cheat, too. Okay. Um, in order to write the book, and this is how I go about when I write uh, Nonfiction. I put together a timeline, and I have an extensive timeline for the case. It helps me with the chapter breaks and whatnot. Right. So, uh, what, so, so what was September, the question? When was the first letter received? Yeah, the the, uh, the uh, airplane attacks in New York were September 11th, and it looks like the the uh, first uh, anthrax attack started September 18th. Um, do do do. That doesn't sound very professional, does it? Uh, September 11th, we had the airplane attacks. Right. On October 4th was the uh, diagnosis and the public announcement of Stevens having anthrax. So approximately three weeks, September 11th to October, October 4th. When we got the letters in our postal inspectors that uh, we were working with, checked the postmark, and there's other markings in invisible uh, uh, ink and, uh, that you can uh, read under UV light they used. Um, the letters were mailed between September 17 and September 18 from Princeton, New Jersey. So we had the 9-11 attacks on September 11. The mail, the letters, the first letters, first letters were mailed September 17 to 18th, a week later. And then on October 4th, we had the first diagnosis of anthrax. So now that, see, now that fascinates me, okay, because it's like a seven-day span from the 2011 to 2018, right? Uh, yep. And so this mailer had this anthrax in his pocket or in his desk somewhere ready to go and, and trying – and he just threw this together in seven days and said, hey, I'm going to do – I'm going to handwrite these uh, envelopes. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's one of the $100 questions of the investigation. Um we never did get that fully, never answer that. All we can do is speculate. It appears that the mailer had the stuff already made or partially made before September 11. It appears. We have, we have no proof of it. Um, 
but when you look at the timeline, as you have, and the amount of work it would take to make these dry spores, mm-hmm. it would probably be more than seven days. Probably. I mean, it's just it could be done, but when you look at the uh, windows of opportunity for the mailer, um, the window isn't there. Uh, he didn't have the time during those seven days to work alone enough to be able to do this. So it appears that he had the stuff made or partially made before 9-11, and then 9-11 gave him the opportunity to drop the letters in the mail and to try to frame al-Qaeda to do it, that had done it. That's, that's again, my speculation. Now, if we if we settle on – you believe Bruce Ivins is the mailer? Yes. Okay, so if we settle on Ivins as the mailer, what would motivate him to, to want to direct the FBI's attention to al-Qaeda? Well, I think, you know, we, we would get to this at some point in the interview. The motive for the mailing, again, is speculation. Uh, we can't interview Bruce at this point. Um, it goes back to the anthrax vaccine. Um, I don't know if you recall back in – now I'm going to guess on some years here. I could be off by year. But 1999 or year 2000 uh, – and I have the article on my computer. I can pull it down off the hard drive if really necessary. But back at that time, before 2001, uh, September 2001, an article appeared in Vanity Fair by a reporter, journalist from Baltimore. I believe he was from Baltimore. And it blamed the anthrax vaccine, which was mandated that every soldier, airman, and Marine be given the vaccine, was causing Gulf War syndrome. That was from the first Gulf War around 91, I believe, early 91. These guys were coming back, and they had some undiagnosed symptoms, which were very odd, and it became called, it became known as Gulf War Syndrome. And the Vanity Fair article blamed the vaccine, uh, said the vaccine cause, was causing Gulf War Syndrome. And uh, it, it, it became politically a hot potato, I guess, because when the uh, Secretary of Defense mandated that all servicemen be vaccinated and servicewomen be vaccinated with anthrax, some resisted. And I do believe there was some court, a couple court martials occurred because the servicemen and women were refusing to do it. So it was always already a political hot potato, maybe. And then this Vanity Fair article uh, made it even worse for the Pentagon to try and control the information and the speculation and so forth. I think at the same time, around the same time, the Pentagon was dealing with the bad press and so forth. I believe they also looked at the likelihood of anthrax being used on the battlefield versus a large radiological bomb, a thousand-pound bomb. Uh, certainly, improvised devices, as, as we saw, were being used quite widely. And they looked at the resources being put into anthrax research and the vaccine versus the likelihood that this stuff may really be wide, uh, used as a widespread weapon, uh, it wasn't adding up. So the command, where Bruce Ivan worked, uh, pulled him in during the summer of 01 and told him that they were probably going to shut down anthrax research and it would be best if he began researching foot and mouth disease as a, a weapon. And we know from emails that we looked at later on in the case that this made him irate. He did not want to stop working on anthrax. It was his career. He had been doing it for 20-some years, and he just basically wasn't going to 
fall in line and just quit anthrax research. And we believe he, he did the mailings in order to uh, preserve anthrax research, get more money for anthrax vaccine, and just more money in general for uh, anthrax. And that's what happened. Um, that, hit, that was exactly the uh, result. A lot of money since uh, these anthrax attacks has been put into biological weapon research. So uh, if that was his motive, he did, did achieve it. And again, that's speculation. Uh, none of us know for sure why he did it. Did, did he benefit from any of that extra funding before his uh, came out of suspicion? No, not really. Not really. I also uh, kind of show or say in my book, I also kind of thought that he expected to be the go-to guy for anthrax and forensics after the uh, the mailings were discovered, that we would go to him because he was one of the country's uh, experts in anthrax. We stand for giving back to our community. We stand for access to food for everyone who needs it. We stand for a better future for all children. We stand for ending hunger. Through your support, Feeding Tampa Bay is transforming the well-being of our region today, tomorrow, and for generations to come. Stand with us. Now is the best time to start working at Amazon. They are offering sign-on bonuses up to $3,000 and hourly pay up to $22 per hour. You'll bring home a great weekly paycheck, and many jobs come with benefits that start on your first day. That's higher pay, sign-on bonuses, benefits day one. And you'll be part of a safe and inclusive workplace ranked among the best in the world. Go to Amazon.com slash apply to start your job search today. Amazon is proud to be an equal opportunity employer. And ask him to help, you know, and this would improve his status and, you know, professional uh, status where he was working. You know, he was not even a supervisor in his job. He uh, uh, hadn't really progressed very rapidly in his career. So I kind of think that that also played into it. And uh, unfortunately for him, we did not use him as the go-to guy. Um, so it just didn't work out that way. Okay. We should take a little commercial break. We're with uh, Scott Decker, former FBI, uh, recounting the anthrax attacks, terror, the Amerithrax Task Force, and the evolution of forensics in the FBI. His website is rscottdecker.com. And once again, you can catch him at the, in Phoenix, uh, November 1st to the 3rd at the Arizona State University for like a book conference on his book. What, are you going to be speaking down there? No, no, I'm just going to be attending. Um, they already had the panels uh, arranged and set up when I became aware of the conference, but I do know some of the people, and uh, I think the attendance will be about 400. So if anybody's interested in writing narrative nonfiction, what we call creative nonfiction, uh, there'll be some very good writers there you can network with. Okay, excellent. And also to the Mom Museum here in Las Vegas uh, on Black Friday, November 23rd, at 4 p.m. And then you're going to be signing your book then, right? Right. Um, we'll have six local crime authors there. Um, I was just there yesterday. My wife gave a talk. And, uh, yeah, on Black Friday, we're going to have uh, – they're going to host six of us uh, local authors that write in true crime. Um, and the museum, I, I have no standing in it at all, but I would say it's – if you're in Vegas, it's really a great tour. It's, it's, they've done a fantastic job. Okay, great. So we'll be right back with more of uh, Scott Decker after these messages. The Opperman Report is brought to you by SubashTechnosis.com. 
Subash Technosis is a search engine optimization and website design company. They're located in India, so you know you're going to save a lot of money and get top quality service. They offer all sorts of business process outsourcing, data entry, banking BPO services, recruitment process outsourcing, software testing, offshoring, research network, customer care, press release, content writing, and distribution, and much, much more. Now, you can get a hold of Subash Technosis by email at info at subashtechnosis.com. Their website is www.subashtechnosis.com, and their Skype is A-N-U-S-H-A-S-U-B-A-S-H. Check out cartking.com, 877-986-7771. Have you ever thought about opening your own mobile cart or kiosk business? Perhaps your current business wants to add multiple point-of-sale locations across the country quickly. Maybe the facility you manage could kickstart revenue by adding coffee, food, or retail services, like let's say you own an office building or a warehouse. Put one of these carts there in the lobby. Well, CartKing.com can be the answer to your needs. CartKing.com is a North American designer and manufacturer of the finest mobile retail coffee and food carts and kiosks money can buy. For 20 years, CartKing.com has been working with clients and corporations across America to provide indoor and outdoor carts and kiosks for any application. From large, heated, and secure outdoor retail or food kiosks to smaller, more mobile coffee kiosks or coffee stations, coffee carts, CartKing.com designs and builds them all. Carts and kiosks are fun, and so are the dozens of designs on the website, CartKing.com. Please visit today at CartKing.com or just call them at 877-986-7771. Tell them Ed Opperman sent you and you get a good deal. Remember, all these shows on Awake are brought to you by EmailRevealer.com. You can go to EmailRevealer.com and get a copy of my book, How to Become a Successful Private Investigator. You also do all the kind of different services for you, online dating service investigations called an online infidelity investigation. And that's where you give us your husband or your boyfriend, your girlfriend's email address, and we trace it back to their online dating websites, and we return a list of all the dating sites that that email is registered to. We can expand on that investigation and trace it back to porn sites, escort service sites, swinger sites, gambling websites, and even prescription drug websites and all kinds of digital forensics, computer and cell phone digital forensics, where we can recover deleted content from an email or a hard drive and produce a report for you that you can use in court. That's emailrevealer.com, or you can contact me at oppermaninvestigations at gmail.com. Okay, welcome back to the Opperman Report. I'm your host, Private Investigator Ed Opperman. We're here with uh, Scott Decker, uh, former FBI, retired. His uh, website is rscottdecker.com. His book we're talking about today is um, Recounting the Anthrax Attacks, Terror, the Amerithrax, which Amerithrax was the code name they gave for the task force name, uh, and the Evolution of Forensics in the FBI. Now, uh, Ivan's uh, the, 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 the recipients of the anthrax were the mail in Congress and in the media. Uh, it's, it's odd that uh, he only chose Democrats uh, to mail to. Would you have a theory on that? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I'm not very well versed in politics. Okay. Um, uh, there's, from what I know of Bruce Ivan's, and I, I talked to him several times, um, he was a patriot. And uh, he has fairly conservative views. Um, that's all I know about that. Whether it was on purpose or a coincidence, I have no idea. Um, hey, let me uh, jump in back up for a second. Okay. 
During the break, I pulled up the Vanity Fair article. It was uh, May of 1999, Vanity Fair, and the journalist is Gary Matsumoto, M-A-T-S-U-M-O-T-O. That was May 99, Vanity Fair. It's, uh, I believe you can pull that down off online. And, right. and what about the, the news outlet? Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's in the media people that he mailed to. Can, can you describe them for us? Um, Tom Brokaw up in New York City received one letter. We recovered it. And the editor at NBC News, or NBC, um, received the second letter. Those were the, and then the AMI building, um, America Media Inc. in Boca Raton, Florida. Those were the three media outlets that did receive letters. We 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 believe AMI did also. We don't have the letter. Um, there may have been one to ABC and uh, possibly a, another one in New York, but we never recovered the letters there. I can't say for sure. And uh, again, why his motive for those targets? I don't know. Um, I just I just couldn't even speculate on that. Now you say you, you interviewed him several times. Can you describe that, Ivan? Um, yeah, I would. Um, he worked at a an institution, and I know that you've had this on an earlier interview. Uh, if I can get the acronym, the acronym is USAMRT, United States. Medical Research Institute for Infectious Diseases, USAMRID. And uh, we say RID or USAMRID um, in conversation. Um, They're in Frederick, Maryland. And before 2001, when I started in the uh, biological weapon research area in 97, when I went to Quantico, we had an MOU with USAMRID to help us with forensics for biological weapons. Um, but we used another individual, uh, Dr. John Azell, was our go-to guy. And John had developed uh, a microbial forensic laboratory that was extremely good in trace analysis of these weapons. Whatever trace of anthrax was left behind at a crime scene, 
John was very good. John and his technician technicians were very good at identifying the substance. You uh, just trace them out. Um, I believe the Secret Service used him also. Uh, so he was our go-to guy. So I was frequently up in New Samrit going to see John and an, another researcher called uh, named Pat Warsham, who was very instrumental in helping us. And I would bump into Bruce in the hallway, and we would talk sometimes. And I realized from what he said and what I had heard about him that he was an expert in making spores, anthrax spores, because uh, his job was to develop a better vaccine in order to prove the vaccine he developed was better than the old one, they would challenge animals with anthrax spores after they had, the animals had been vaccinated with the new vaccine. That was Bruce's job to produce those spores and to help with the uh, research in developing a new and better anthrax vaccine. So I eventually went to him because I was trying to learn the art and science of growing anthrax and making spores and how this was done. Uh, dried anthrax spores hadn't been made in this country since 1969, I'm going to say. That's when the U.S. government had a large biological weapon program, which President Nixon shut down in 1969. And all the dried anthrax weapons that the country had was destroyed. So nobody had seen dried anthrax, at least we were unaware of it, until 2001 of September. Uh, October, really, when we recovered the letters. So anyway, uh, long and short, I went to Bruce and his technician to ask them to explain to me the science of making anthrax spores so we could plug that information into the investigation. If there were special uh, items of equipment needed, we could identify who had bought those, that equipment. If there were special reagents needed, uh, we would look at the uh, supply houses and see who may have bought a lot of those reagents just before the mailing. You know, pretty standard detective work, really. Sure. Um, and he and his, his technician, his technician was uh, named Pat Fellows. She's since moved on to uh, other companies. Um, they explained to me, and it was a bit of an art. Um, when they did it, they said sometimes they just wouldn't work, and they really weren't sure why. They knew if they um, kept the uh, light off it, it helped. Uh, Things like this, if they put the flask, growing flask in uh, tinfoil, that may help. They weren't sure what the science was behind it. Was They observed it what did make better spores. And uh, they did publish their work, and I asked them, when you publish your methods and materials in a paper on a new vaccine, you know, and they describe how they made the spores, because that could be important, I asked them, do they put all the techniques and nuances in their write-up in the methods and material? They said, no, we don't. We purposely leave out some of the critical details, and if somebody in the country wants to learn how to make anthrax spores, now these are wet, wet spores, not dry, uh, Pat Fellows would go to that person's lab and show them how to do it. But they did, in the publications that anybody in the world could get, they did leave out critical factors. So uh, it was educational talking to Bruce and uh, Pat. But we did not use Bruce as a go-to person for forensics. Uh, we stayed with John Azell for that. And the reason was not that Bruce wasn't a good scientist. It was that his lab was full of concentrated spores. That was his job, to make concentrated spores for vaccine challenge experiments. So if we're looking at a trace analysis and using a lab which has large quantities of the same concentrated stuff, it's a recipe for disaster, uh, forensically. 
So we just didn't use Bruce's lab because it was just too, the, the potential for contamination was too great. Whereas John Azell uh, was a student of trace analysis and his lab was uh, pristine, clean. Now, the, the anthrax that was used uh, in, in the mailings, uh, where, where do you uh, conclude that that anthrax was developed? At Bruce Irvin's lab where he worked, or the, did he set up a second lab at his home or in a, a warehouse or something? Uh, that, that was the big break in the case for us. Okay. That was the aha, aha moment. Um, the spores that were made, made uh, the spores that were dried, and put in the envelopes and sent through the mail, ultimately killed five people. Um, I lost my train of thought here. Um, where, were they, where were those spores made? Okay, yeah. Um, the spores in those letters matched genetically. The DNA matched perfectly to spores in a large flask, uh, which started out as a 1,000 milliliters, one liter, about a half a quart, I believe, of highly concentrated pure anthrax spores. And that flask of highly concentrated spores was made and maintained and kept by Bruce Ivins in his laboratory at Usamrick. So that's, that was the origin of our letters. That gotcha. flask under Bruce Ivins. Uh, uh, he was the custodian of it. But do we know where... Do we, do we know where and how he produced the, the spores, the dried spores that were mailed? Was it from his lab there where he had his big jug of <laughs> stuff, you know, you're talking about? Or what, did he have another lab set up someplace? We never identified another lab. Wow. If he had one, like a, a garage somewhere in the neighborhood he was renting, we never found it. And that's, again, speculation. Um, we, we, uh, we could look at those, that large flask of spores was called RMR 1029. RMR was for research reference material, or re research material reference. I don't know why they named it like that, but that was their naming convention. And this batch was batch 1029. They had a batch 1030 and so forth. But this one was RMR 1029. Um, uh, and that had been made, some of it by Bruce and Pat Fellows, had made, had made small quantities of spores themselves and added to that flask, but the bulk of it came under contract from Dugway Proving Grounds outside Salt Lake City in Utah. Um, they had for the USAMRID and the research group, the Anthrax research group there, which Ivans was a part of, forecast that to develop, develop the new vaccine that they were trying to do, they would require much, many more spores and Bruce and Pat could uh, grow on their own, produce on their own. So they let a contract at the Wake Proving Ground, and they took receipt of seven large batches of spores from Dugway. Uh, Dugway has, has fermenters out there. It's, it's a real production facility. USAMR did not have that capability. Um, so they had it fermented out in Dugway, and it was shipped back to Bruce. When one of the seven shipments came in, Bruce would take it, and further purify it. And when he was done, RMR 1029 was very concentrated and very high degree of uh, pure, pure, pureness, pureness, what's the right word? The, the spores were very pure in that there was very little, if any, cell debris left over, um, very little auger or growth media was left behind. Uh, the spores were pure. So if anybody had dried that down, it would be uh, a powder. 
It could turn into an aerosol very easily due to its pureness. Um, we do not think he took it directly out of that flask and mailed it. And the reason I'm saying that, I know one of your interviews a couple of years ago brought this out, um, and it's publicly known. The, the spores sent to New York City and the spores sent to Capitol Hill are very different right. when you look at them under a microscope. Uh, so that's why we think um, he took the spores from his 1029 batch and grew up smaller amounts for the mailings. That's based on the fact that the New York City spores are very dirty, granular, uh, not pure at all. The spores he sent to Capitol Hill, to Tom Daschle and Patrick Leahy, are very pure, highly concentrated dry spores. So it appears that he made two different batches at a minimum, if not three. Now, is it possible to like he could only make small batches? Is that why? Like, why wouldn't he? Or could he make big batches? Um, his lab could only make what we call small batches. You know, small is a relative term. Right. Um, not not nearly what they forecast uh, the amount of spores that they would need in the next couple of years for their research. Um, Bruce would have to work night and day, and uh, a fermenter is a large stainless steel, uh, I don't know what the word for it is. They're, they're tall. They can be uh, three feet tall. They can be 10 feet, eight feet tall maybe. And they're circular, big uh, sealed barrels, I guess. And they ferment the bugs under there. And the fermentation project allows the bacteria to, to grow to a high concentration. Whereas in Bruce's lab and all the other labs at Samrid, uh, I don't believe anybody had a fermenter. I could be wrong, but I can't think of one off the top of my head. So they could only do small batches just doing, uh, stirring a, a glass flask around in a circle to aerate it. Okay. So they, they just didn't have the capability there. And I don't think the uh, the command that Usambard wanted to invest in that type, it was uh, cheaper and more efficient in the long run to contract it out to Dugway. Now, in your contact with Bruce Ivins, was it always uh, um, friendly? You're both working on the same team, or did you ultimately interrogate him and question him in, in connection with these crimes? Um, initially, yeah, uh, he was very uh, amenable to. In fact, he appeared like he wanted to help us. Um, again, we didn't didn't want to go to his lab for work because of the high amount of spores that was there. Um, when I interviewed him, and I would describe, try to show the in the book. I tried to describe one afternoon, I talked to him and Pat, and they described how they made uh, aerosol um, plumes to challenge the uh, animals vaccinated with the new, uh, new vaccines that had been inoculated with a new vaccine. And when they described what they did, they put the wet slurry up into the air as an aerosol. I naively said, well, it sounds like what you're doing is the same thing we would do, someone would do to uh, produce a biological weapon, send it up in the air as a mist and aerosol, and Bruce got mad. Mm. It, he changed 180 degrees. His personality changed, and he was irate. And I didn't know what was coming next. Next, he's not a big guy, but you don't have to be big to to cause some damage. So I was on alert, and uh, he just he they, he shouted, "No, it isn't!" Just shouted, uh, complete change in in demeanor. So I, uh, I de-escalated things and said, well, I apologize for my stupidity. I'm naive, et cetera. I didn't mean it. But I, it always stuck with me, and uh, I wrote it up when I get back to the office because that was, that was odd, I guess. Um, 
Later on in the investigation, after we were pretty sure it was him, um, and in a criminal investigation or criminal terrorism investigation, um, it's always a judgment call is when you approach your subject. A subject is the bureau's term for the person that did it, perpetrator. And uh, it's always a judgment because if you approach them before you have all the evidence, you're obviously going to alert them that they're under suspicion. They could destroy evidence that hadn't been found yet. Uh, they could take off. They could leave the country. They could go to a, a, a country that we don't have extradition treaty with. So it's always a judgment call. Um, when I worked bank robberies, I don't think I inter interviewed a subject until I had an arrest warrant in hand. Uh, but the, the decision was made by the task force to interview him before we had all the evidence gathered, before we had an indictment, et cetera. Uh, and he was interviewed one time by Rick Lambert, a very lengthy interview. And then when Ed Montooth and Vince Lizzie came on the task force and Rick transferred to Knoxville, uh, Ed Montooth and Lizzie interviewed Bruce twice, January and then in February. Um, and the idea was to get him on record so if we indicted and went to trial, he wouldn't be able to change the story. He would go on, on record as giving these answers. Um, but that obviously put him on alert that he was under suspicion. That happened January, February, two different interviews. Um, not really controversial, uh, confrontational, uh, somewhat, but not uh, very confrontational. And then in June of 08, um, approximately six months after those two interviews, he was interviewed for the final time. And that one be was somewhat confrontational. Um, he was asked questions, the same things he had been asked back in January and February, and his story started to change. He was confronted with those changes. Um, it didn't go well for him. And uh, he committed suicide about later. Are these interrogations or these questionings, is there a transcript or a tape recording available for the public to go view? Uh, hang on, I got a call waiting in my ear here. Okay. Okay, they hung up. Um, the FBI, as policy, does not record when we interview. And I've been asked that on the witness stand. Um, they are The interviews are written up. Um, they're supposed to be very detailed. We have to write them up in five working days. That's policy, or else we're out of policy. And I've also answered to that on the witness stand <laughs> as to why I missed the deadline a couple of times. Um, but they were all written up within the five days. Um, and what happened is after DOJ closed the case in 2010, the FBI released a lot of the documents and put them online. And uh, your audience can find them online now. They are redacted. Like the ones I wrote, my name has been eked out, but a person can read them and get the gist of uh, what was happening. And uh, the ones with Bruce Ivins, they did not redact his name, but the people that did the interviews, the, those names are redacted. So mine being one of them. Ivins never left a confession or a suicide note to confess to any of this? No, he sure didn't. And, and the, the manner of death, the manner of the suicide was by Tylenol. Which is, do you find that unusual? At the time I did, um, while researching for the book and talking to a toxicologist, a very good toxicologist at uh, University of Virginia, it turns out the Tylenol poisoning is fairly common as a method of poisoning here in the U.S. Uh, it's not all that uncommon. 
what happens is the Tylenol, and I myself have always known I stopped taking Tylenol yeah, years me ago. Too. Because, yeah. yeah, it's it's hard on your liver. Yeah. Um, so I I gave up taking the stuff. But if you if the person eats a lot of it, takes a lot of it, even liquid or dry form, it will start to attack your liver uh, as a toxin. And after your liver begins to fail, then the other organs start to fail. Uh, the domino effect, your, the kidney will fail. The kidneys, um, the heart will begin to fail. And the individual will become septic. That's when bacteria start to run rampant through the bloodstream because the immune system is breaking down also. Uh, it's also a painful way to go. The early stages of Tylenol poisoning, I'm told, are very painful. But what Bruce did, and we... We know two ways, two different things tell us he he poisoned himself with Tylenol. I think it was Tylenol PM, a little okay. sedative added to it, if I remember. But we went through his trash after the suicide. Uh, there were two receipts. There were, no, excuse me. One receipt for two large bottles of Tylenol were in his trash, uh, dated the day before he killed himself. Um and then the toxicology screens at the hospital where before he died also showed uh, Tylenol metabolites in his system. And uh, they concluded it was Tylenol poisoning. Um, what he did, they also found metabolites or traces in his, uh, I think, urine of Valium. So we believe he took the Valium together with the Tylenol. The Valium would keep him sedated in the early stages of the poisoning, so he wouldn't feel the pain. He would be asleep, and uh, if he didn't feel the pain and he was sleeping, he would not be tempted to call for help. Uh, he, the, uh, the Valium's metabolized quicker than the Tylenol is, I believe. The Valium started to wear off when he was in the hospital. Uh, he woke briefly, and he admitted to a nurse that he did uh, try to commit suicide. Um, at that point, by the time the Valium wore off, his organs were uh, in too bad a shape to really be saved. And uh, I guess he had a living will, and his spouse uh, had them take him off life support once his organs failed. So, again, I, I describe it in my book, and I'm, I'm not a toxicologist, so some of that is off a little bit. It's, it's my fault. We only have about five minutes left. Uh, in the description of your book, it says that there's some other little-known stories that you can share with us. Anything that we haven't heard before that you want to share with us? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, little-known stories. Well, I mean, it, we did some interesting things during the investigation. Ultimately, didn't prove, you know, there, there was negative, um, proved it going nowhere. I, I went to South Africa on okay. a trip. Half of yeah. Yeah, it's it's a long plane ride, <laughs> a real long plane ride. A fascinating country. Um, Cape Town is a beautiful place. It really is. It's, I would think like going back in time, what California was like maybe in the 20s or 30s. Mm. A lot of stretches along the beach that are just vacant and empty. Uh, the reason I went there is we I interviewed the uh, uh, Wouter Bassoon who supposedly the head of the South African Biological Weapon Program back in the 70s. Um, ultimately, there was no connection to him, but we needed to, to rule him out. That was an interesting interview. It was long, and I worked with one of the uh, South African detectives who had been on the uh, other side during the apartheid era, 
and now everybody in the country was working as one, and uh, it was interesting and very educational. Um, and where is Hathor is Hathor yeah. alive today? Yes, I believe he is. Yeah. Okay, and does he do interviews? Do you know anybody you want to talk to? Him? The last I saw, he did a magazine interview about three or four years ago. All right, and I guess he's just uh, sitting back spending his money, right, from uh, suing the FBI. Uh, let me ask you a question yeah. real quick, because uh, uh, Mueller and Comey were both involved in this investigation. Do, do you know both of them? Uh, I know Mr. Mueller. Um, we went to brief him on several occasions up in his office at headquarters. Um, never met Mr. Comey, and I don't recall him having any input in the case. If it was, it was when I was not present. It was between the director and him, maybe. Well, well, I never, I've, I've met him after he was appointed director. He came out to uh, Las Vegas and uh, met everybody at the Las Vegas office. But, uh, yeah, I know uh, Mr. Mueller fairly fairly well, and uh, he's a tough taskmaster. He uh, doesn't suffer slowness. You, you have to speak quickly, directly, and know your stuff. But he's also fair, and he's highly intelligent. So and uh, I think everybody who worked for him respected him a great deal. Well, when, when you, was, you know, we're both in the Vegas, local Vegas here. And when you hear these radio hosts like Wayne Allen Root, you know, <laughs> these characters going on and on and on with these bizarre theories about the, uh, I don't even know how to describe it, but like a whole cabal of FBI agents going after the president. What do you, what do you make of that? Say it again. Going after who? <laughs> and going after the president of the United States, that, that, uh, that they would be setting up the president and, and interfering in the election. Did you, what, what, what do you make uh, of that? Not the FBI agents, uh, FBI agents I worked with. Right. Uh, now, um, my, uh, I know when they hired me, when you come in as an agent, you, you have to do a panel interview and three uh, senior agents interview you uh, and grade you on a lot of things. And they told me up front, it's not a political organization. We investigate whoever we do. We do not bend to political whims. That was back in the late 80s, but I don't think anything's changed. And again, I've been out for, what, six years now, six or seven years. Okay. So I'm out of touch. But I, I just know that the agents I worked with would, would not do something like that. Scott Decker, thank you so much. The book is Recounting the Anthrax Attacks, Terror, the Amerithrax Task Force, and the Evolution of Forensics in the FBI. You can check out his website at rscottdecker.com. If you're here in uh, Nevada on Black Friday, November 23rd, you can see him at the Mob Museum there at 4 p.m. Otherwise, you can go down to this nonfiction conference in uh, 2018, uh, Arizona State University, November 1st to the 3rd. Uh, you can check him out down there as well. Thank you so much, Mr. Decker. Thank you, Ed. Good night. Bye. Okay, well, there we had Scott Decker. Excellent stuff there. I think some new information we got there on the anthrax investigation from someone who was uh, firsthand involved. Uh, we did some previous shows on this. You can check back. Uh, we did one with the Richard Lambert. Uh, you can go back and check. I think it was a two-hour interview we did with him. And also, we did a couple other ones, too, with authors, uh, theories, and uh, theorists involved in the case as well. Uh, so if you just uh, Google Opperman Report Anthrax, they should pop up for you. Let's take a little commercial break, and we'll be right back with a little wrap-up here. Okay, we'll be right back after these messages. <laughs> 